Every glass of wine tells a story. These stories reveal hidden histories, flavors, and passions. And sometimes they unravel our darkest desires. In Wine Enthusiast's newest podcast, Vinfamous, journalist Ashley Smith dissects the underbelly of the wine world. We hear from the people who know what it means when the product of love and care becomes the source of greed, arson, and even murder. Each episode takes listeners into the mysterious and historic world of winemaking and the crimes that have since become infamous. This podcast pairs well with wine lovers, history nerds, and crime junkies alike. So grab a glass of your favorite wine and follow the podcast to join them as they delve into the twists and turns behind the all-time most shocking wine crimes. Follow Vinfamous on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen, and be sure to follow the show so you never miss a scandal. New episodes drop every other Wednesday. Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern bar cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome to episode 260 of the Modern Bar Cart Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Koslick. Thanks for joining me for another interview episode where we track down the best and brightest minds in the spirits and cocktail world so that we can share their secrets with you. This time around, I'm joined by my friend, distiller Mark Viertaler, whom longtime listeners may remember from episode 121, where he and I talked about the finer points of distilling absinthe. But folks, one thing you should know about Mr. Viertaler is that he is a Renaissance individual, a dog lover, a motorcycle enthusiast, absinthe connoisseur perhaps, but the story doesn't end there, because this time around... We're here to talk about the American single malt category and the fascinating, delicious work that he's doing as head distiller at Whiskey Del Bach in Tucson, Arizona. But before we talk about the art and science of mesquite smoked malts, before we measure your phenolic parts per million, check your creosol and guayacol levels and slap you in a barrel to soak up a breezy Tucsonian 40 degree diurnal swing, let's take a brief pause so that you can make yourself a drink. This episode's featured cocktail is the South by Southwest. To make it, you'll need one ounce or 30 ml of peated single malt whiskey, one ounce or 30 ml of Campari or a similar red Italian bitter aperitivo, one ounce or 30 ml of your favorite sweet vermouth, and a mist of orange blossom water. Now, if you're worried about picking up this ingredient because you don't know what else to do with it, maybe consider using it in its most famous cocktail application, the Ramos Gin Fizz. Back to the South by Southwest. Using an atomizer, mist the inside of a chilled old-fashioned glass with a few spritzes of orange blossom water. Then, in a mixing glass with ice, combine the other ingredients, stir until well chilled and properly diluted, Then strain into your old-fashioned glass over a large rock, garnish with a citrus twist, and enjoy. Developed by Australian bartender Benny McHugh and featured in Gaz Regan's book The Negroni, this cocktail does one better than a simple swap-in scotch cocktail like the Rob Roy. Instead of settling for that simple swap-in, this drink takes its most ornery ingredient, clearly that 
peated single malt whiskey. Then it pops its heads out of the weeds and surveys the landscape to determine if there are any techniques that can be pulled in from other cocktail formats that might help acclimatize that naughty ingredient to the Negroni use case. Clearly, it locates that technique in the Orange Blossom Water Mist, a kind of Crescent City mashup between the Sazerac Absinthe Rinse and the aforementioned Ramos Bicep Workout. What's to love about this? Well, a couple things. One, it clearly balances out the smoky, aggressive notes from the peated single malt with floral sweet tones that naturally form a bridge to the other two sweetened aromatized ingredients. And two, it begs the question, is there other stuff we should be doing to our Negronis? I mean, don't get me wrong. I love them classic. I love them spagliatoed. I love them red and I love them white in a box with a fox, etc., etc. But I'm kind of ashamed to admit that in all my Negroni travels, it hasn't once occurred to me to give my glass an aromatized rinse. So I'll leave you with this question. What else are we missing? What other frontiers are we declining to push when it comes to our favorite equal parts libation? Try your hand at the South by Southwest cocktail, tag us on Instagram, and let us know if it inspires you to borrow a lateral technique and create an innovation of your own. So, with a shiny new Negroni riff in hand, let's turn our attention back to the interview. In this mesquited, not peated conversation with Whiskey Del Bach head distiller Mark Viertaler, some of the topics we discuss include what it takes for a spirit to be called an American single malt whiskey, a term that is currently self-administered by the American Single Malt Whiskey Commission, but that's on track for nationwide federal approval and regulation by the TTB. A brief romp through some of the controversies still yet to be resolved regarding the mandatory or prohibited use of certain barrels and finishing techniques. The story of Whiskey Del Bach, from esoteric Southwest-inspired furniture to calibrating against an iconic Scotch brand to releasing some of the most innovative and distinct American single malt offerings on today's market. Mark also walks us through some of the most important process-related decisions he and his team manage, including precise malt smoking, narrow cuts to accommodate small format barrels, and the ever-crucial question of aging in the desert, where temperatures fluctuate aggressively. We wrap up by featuring the offerings in Whiskey Del Box Global Cask Selection, including their Frontera, Normandy, and Ode to Isla annual bottlings. Along the way, we pen a love letter to the humble Javelina, reenact one of the worst drams I've ever had at a bar, try our hand at designing the ultimate distillery cat, and much, much more. All I can say about this one, dear listeners, is that you're in for a real treat. Mark is one of those folks who really walks the walk when it comes to quality, and he manages to do it, as you'll see, without expense to the creative end of the distilling endeavor. We'll be featuring this year's Whiskey Del Bach Frontera release in our next new and noteworthy bottle review episode. But for now, please enjoy this deep dive into the world of American single malts with the one and only Mark Viertaler. Mark, welcome back to the podcast. It is excellent to be here. Thanks for having me back. Yeah. So uh, last time you were on the podcast, we were in person. We were live and in person. 
And we were actually talking about absinthe, which is very, very far away from, I think, many of the things that we'll be talking about in this episode. But but I could be wrong. Uh, but before we jump into uh, all things American single malt, uh, as you mentioned offline, uh, the desert southwest and, yes. and what you're doing these days, uh, can you reintroduce yourself uh, to those listeners who might not have joined us for that initial interview of course, of course, yeah. So, um, Mark A. Viertaler, um, I am currently, and hopefully for a while, a distiller <laughs> at uh, Whiskey Del Bach here in Tucson, Arizona. Um, as you as you had kind of mentioned, we pretty much exclusively make American single malt whiskey. We did actually release a rye last fall. That, however, was a source product, and we can kind of talk a little bit about that. So last time I was on, I was head distiller of 10th Ward Distilling Company there in Frederick, Maryland. So made a bit of a jump moving from the mid-Atlantic to the desert southwest. Yeah, I got my start distilling seven years ago in my hometown of Dodge City, Kansas at Boot Hill Distillery. So that is the, the cliff notes of how I went from western Kansas to Maryland to southwest U.S. Indeed, indeed. Well, it's great to have you back. Uh, I I know that when we get together, we always have uh, a lot of fun talking tasting notes and process, right? And especially, I, I feel like you and I both enjoy the intersection of tasting notes and process, right? Yes. Um, you know, as, as, as tempted as I am, you know, I, I, I obviously I did my homework. I, I did some research on on Whiskey Del Bach, your 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 current gig, and uh, as tempted as I am to just jump into that story because it's super juicy, as you well know. I think we should do our listeners and and actually me a bit of a service here by talking about the American single malt category in general. And the reason why I say that is because. Well, a couple of things. I had a really great conversation with Lance Winters from St. George Spirits about American single malt as a category. And we talked about it at a very sort of zoomed out level. And we were kind of comparing American single malt to some of the more old world spirits like traditional single malt, perhaps, or even like French cognac, where there's many more rules involved. And I think we were doing some comparing and contrasting there. But I'd like to actually dig in a little bit more like what is American single malt like who's making it how is it different from bourbon like these are some of the questions that I think it would be great to address for our listeners before we talk about Del Bach in particular yeah definitely um so yeah so American single malt I have I'm a I have a soft spot for kind of self-defining terms and I feel American single malt kind of falls within that up to an extent but basically you know according to the American single malt whiskey Commission uh, which is kind of the self-governing board of American single malt produ- producers here in the US right now uh, for it to be an American single malt the the number one thing is of course it has to be made 100% in America by a single distillery. It has to have a 100% malted barley base. Uh, For those people who are big into whiskey production, it then kind of follows a lot of the traditional American styles of production. It has to come off of your still at 160 proof or below, go into barrels at 125 proof or below. Um, One of the ways, probably one of the biggest ways that we actually break with the other traditional American styles is you don't have to go into brand new oak. Um, And I think one thing we'll talk a little bit about is that is kind of how you will see people start to branch off 
and really start to make their own impact on the area of American single malt whiskey. Because, you know, what I'll always tell people when they'll come in is, you know, we have water, yeast, barley in the barrel. So we have four ingredients. But even within those four ingredients, there is so much control you can have over and so much impact you can have on final flavor profile. I had mentioned American Single Malt Whiskey Commission, kind of the self-regulatory right now. Um, I don't know how deep we want to get into regulatory issues because, you know, that it makes for great listening. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But uh, the TTB, which is our regulatory body um, for distilleries, is in the process of recognizing American single malt whiskey as an actual recognized designation here in the U.S. Um, we had we had hoped uh, that it would have gone through by this point. Uh, it was open for public commentary last year, and while the support has been overwhelming, the last conversations that have been happening with the TTB they're kind of working through some concerns that other people raised. So fingers crossed. Sooner rather than later, though, it will be an actual designation. Yeah, that's interesting. So a number of things to comment on there. Uh, so I, I like that you were able to call out some of these proof points, right? The um, It needs to be distilled at 160 proof, which is 80% ABV mm-hmm. or below, right? And the or below to me is, is, the, is the part that points toward process and eventually flavor profile to me, right? Because if you're putting these things through a, you know, continuous column still, you know, they're generally like when you do go that route and you distill at to a super high proof, you are going to be making a product that is vastly different than the outcome that you're aiming for in American single malt. So probably not that you would need to tell a bunch of people who are going for that specific outcome that they need to do it, but it's useful to have that. It's useful to have that cutoff, I guess. Right. Um, right. Which, which actually sort of uh, gets sort of divergent from what I was talking about with Lance, which is like the, the whole, the creativity, the wide openness of the landscape. It's interesting as we see more people kind of, latch on to this product style, American single malt, and want to get it recognized that suddenly it's like, ooh, no, we actually do want some of these constraints. And it does behoove us as a group to get together and say like, okay, like, yeah, we want our creativity. Maybe we don't ever want to have to gun to our head, use new charred oak barrels, but maybe we do want to make sure that somebody who's running this stuff through a continuous column still at like 95% ABV isn't able to then slap our value kind of like our, our, our category name on their product as, and it seems to me like that would be somewhat misleading. So that's all really good information to have. Do you mind if I maybe probe a little bit into what some of the objections are that the the TTB might be considering? Yeah. So at least, so, you know, I always say, take this with a grain of salt. This is what I've heard from people I've chatted with at TTB that they have publicly disclosed. Um, Obviously them being a government agency, they do keep a lot of this close to their chest, but some of the, some of the objections that we've heard have been one that there is not a requirement to use a brand new barrel. So bourbon, rye, wheat, whiskey, all other American whiskeys other than corn whiskey, you have to use a brand new barrel. Um, so there has been there have been some producers of these other spirits that have said, hey, why do we have to follow this rule and American single malt doesn't? <laughs> 
Um, the other big controversy has also been coloration. Um, uh. We have, and I say we as in the American Single Malt Whiskey Commission, and I, I should bring this up so I can make sure that I am accurately speaking to it. But one of the things was the ability to put in a small amount of coloration for consistency of color. That has also led to some discussion of, are you being transparent? Can you be adequately, you know, presenting your product if you are using coloration, if you are using caramel coloring, you know, which then can lead into the whole discussion of, well, let's talk about cognac and let's talk about bois and let's talk about, you know, all these other very highly regarded production processes that do allow a little bit of putting your thumb on the scale for consistency. But those, to my knowledge, have been the biggest ones. It's been the coloration Mm. and has been uh, utilization of new barrels. Mm-hmm. Well, let me give you my. I, I'm I'm not going to touch the col- the coloration just because I don't think we've done enough groundwork on, like you said, the the adding of like oak extract and the the boise or the the dosa- dosages of different types, uh, especially as they correspond to straight distillates versus sweetened stuff and all, all the other all the other nuances. There, we haven't covered that in, in nearly enough depth on the show or personally for me to feel comfortable uh, commenting on that. But when it comes to barrels, Mm -hmm. I I guess my impression and, and you know, you you can, you can just decide to, to not touch this impression with a 10 foot pole. Uh, But it, it, it seems to me that like, you know, it's a little ironic that there's an outcry from bourbon about the new chart oak barrel thing, because that's kind of their thing. And like, it seems like, well, it, it almost seems to me to be like, a, well, I want to have my thing, but I don't want you to have your thing. Uh, and, and so I, I, I don't know. I, uh, I'm not, I'm not quite sure. I, I guess I, I, when it comes to the coloration, I can see where that would be a, a concern in terms of deception. Um, right. but, but when it comes to some of the other stuff with the barrels, like I, I just feel like it's like, well, you could just make an American single malt then. Uh, right, right. Oh no, 100%. And you know, obviously we're, we're coming at it. And I say we, as in like myself, uh, Whiskey Del Bach, uh, the members of the Single Malt Whiskey Commission, uh, we're craft producers. You know, we, I think Whiskey Del Bach, we're a bit of an anomaly in that, um, like say like Westland and Westward, we're making American single malt, you know? And so to us, it is that ability to not have that constraint. Um, it is again, a, a section that is largely born out of the Scottish single malt movement. Um, and you know, I don't know. I, I, I think I've heard this could be apocryphal that also the reason that there is the new charred Oak requirement that was in there for the Coopers <laughs> and, and, and the Cooperages were like, well, we need to make sure that we're still getting this. And, you know, I, I, I say that not uh, knowing um, and having yeah. a great amount of respect for the Coopers because they make our barrels. And when we get into talking about whiskey Del Bach, we break with the Scottish standard. We do use new charred American white Oak for our mm. process. So, so that is something that like we, we fully support not requiring that, even though that's what we do, because I think that does come back to then allowing that ability to have more nuanced and more adventurous aging mm. processes within American single malt and not being specifically tied to 
because new new oak new charred oak creates a very distinctive profile it is a very american profile <laughs> it is it is and and you know it's right there in the name american single malt so so we'll leave that we'll leave that there it's, it's uh meant to be unresolved but i i think we're gonna maybe revisit some of these specifics as it pertains to like our ability to remix traditional spirits by using potentially you know uh slightly innovative techniques uh but i, I think that's a great entree into uh whiskey del box so could you give us the the whiskey del box story so that our listeners understand what your brand is doing and how i mean we've already you know kind of explained one way that like that you guys are that stand apart and that you're using these new charred oak barrels, but like what, what else sets you guys apart from the pack? Yeah, definitely. Uh, so with, so we're recording this in March of 2023. So this is 12 years. We've been open for 12 years, officially opened our doors in 2011. Uh, we are founded by Stephen Paul and his daughter, Amanda Paul. It's a super interesting story about how the distillery actually came to be. Uh, so Stephen and his wife, Elaine, actually owned a furniture business here in Tucson for 30 years. And they specifically were known for the work that they did with mesquite wood. For, for those of you who aren't very familiar with mesquite, mesquite is a native tree shrub that grows, especially within the American Southwest. It is this very striking, very gnarled tree. It also has this beautiful wood grain that is an absolute nightmare to work with. Um, Stephen, who, who, who grew up here in Tucson, uh, was very obsessed with um, this idea of creating furniture that was of the Sonoran Desert, um, because it is this very twisted, very gnarled wood, it also produces a lot of waste. You know, there is a lot of scrap that was coming with him back to the house. And uh, I always say I'm contractually obligated to tell this joke, so I will I will say it. Uh, Stephen would bring the chips home. He and his wife Elaine would smoke them in the backyard. And Stephen would say, there are profits going up in smoke. <laughs> <laughs> I've said Indeed. it. Yes. Uh, but yeah, so, but in all seriousness, what had happened was uh, Stephen and Elaine are big scotch drinkers. And, you know, they would sit out on their back porch and they would sip their scotch. And uh, Stephen will always say that Elaine is the idea person. And they were drinking scotch one night and she was like, hey, you know, they, they dry or, you know, some scotches dry their malts over a peat fire. Has anyone ever considered doing mesquite instead? Uh, and Stephen kind of got obsessed with this idea and set about teaching him how, himself how to distill and teaching himself how to malt and, you know, started experimenting in the back of his wood shop and eventually was able to produce a single malt that he felt was good enough that could go to market. And uh, around 2011, his daughter, Amanda, moved back to Tucson from New York, where she'd been for about 10 years and was like, hey, this, you know, this, this is a business like, you know, we should we should make this legitimate. We should we should see how far we can take this. And so the two of them founded Hamilton Distillers which is our actual company name. And then Whiskey Del Bach is the American single malt uh, that we make. And we started with what we call our classic, which is an unsmoked American single malt. But what we're most known for is what was born out of this idea of using mesquite for your malt. And so that's our Dorado. And that is what we call a mesquited, not peated American single malt. As I had mentioned, for it to be American single malt, we can only use 100% malted barley. But there are so many other things within 
that subset that we can use. And so for our unsmoked offerings, we do source our malt from just outside of Texas, excuse me, just outside of Fort Worth, a malting house called Tex Malt. But for our mesquited malt, we still do malt and smoke that in-house. Uh, we are one of the few distilleries in the U.S., at least especially our size, <laughs> that does in-house malting. And so, yeah, so that's kind of where Whiskey Del Bach was born from, was being able to take this idea of what makes Scottish single malt so good and then really putting a place and a time on it. You know, I will always tell people, Whiskey Del Bach is of the Sonoran Desert. It is a love letter to Baja, Arizona. And, you know, some people will be like, oh, well, you know, maybe you should try and make it taste more like scotch. And, you know, I'll always say Scotland doesn't apologize for their whiskey tasting like Scottish whiskey. Ireland, Ireland doesn't. Kentucky doesn't. Why should Arizona apologize for creating a whiskey that is of its place? Right, right. First of all, love the story. It's it's a it's a great way to resonate with the brand. And I, I think one of the things that I appreciate most is that you've got the initial idea, the initial nucleus or seed from which this enterprise sprouted was mesquited, not peated, Mm -hmm. right? And yet the first product launched was not that, right? It was not. Right? And and I think, I don't know, do you think that's important? I think that's important. I think it's very important because, you know, Stephen will always maintain that, you know, he wanted to have a quality product before he felt he could implement especially something so at the time off the wall. I mean, you know, there there are multiple uh, distilleries that are producing mesquited products these days. You know, we're also not even the only American single malt. Um, Santa Fe Spirits, who we, we adore, Colin Keegan, you know, they actually were coming up kind of side by side with Whiskey Del Bach at the same time, creating a mesquited American single malt. But yeah, Stephen, Stephen always said he wanted to like hit that Macallan 12 quality level, not so much for the flavor profile, but for the quality level. That if if he was able to create an unsmoked single malt that could rival that in in terms of quality, then he could move on to the next thing. So what does that mean in the glass and on the palate? Uh, the Macallan 12, many will be familiar with it, but what about that? I mean, I mean, like, let's just, let's just say people have favorite whiskeys, right? So, so it's great. You know, so Steven's got this, this, this whiskey that he really enjoys. And I, I think it's natural to set that as a benchmark, but kind of digging into more of the process things and some of the, some of those quality touch points that you're looking for, what is what does Macallan Twelve do particularly well that Whiskey Del Bach? Uh, I'm guessing it's the uh, the the original. Does the original have a name? Well, we call it Classic. Classic. So the Classic yes. Del Bach. Yes. What does that share in common with the Macallan Twelve? Wow. So that's so you know obviously I can't speak for Stephen on what his benchmarks were other than obviously drinkability. You know I think I think. And and I hate that word. That's that's such a. It's just like smooth. Like you hand somebody, they taste something, and they're like, oh yeah, that's smooth. But you know, for me, when I first was introduced to the brand, and you know, I, I had heard, I had heard of Del Bach back in Maryland, and I had just never been able to get my hands on a bottle. And so when this conversation started of you know me potentially heading out there, I was like, okay, I, I want to see if I can find this. 
and was actually able to track down a couple of bottles um, there in Maryland and brought it back. And while I wouldn't say again, in terms of flavor profile, that the classic had this, I wasn't like, oh, that's a Macallan 12. It was accessible. It was, I think people have this idea, especially in the Scotch realm of it's going to be peated. It's going to be smoky. It's going to have this iodine note and it's going to be way too punchy. And it's just not going to give me what I think is going to be an enjoyable drinking experience. And the classic is very much kind of like the Dorado. It is of the Sonoran desert. It doesn't have those mesquite notes, but it is, it's balanced. It is very chocolatey, but it also, because again, we go into new charred oak, it has these very kind of bourbon-like notes. There's a lot of vanillins. Um, it's very tannic, but I, I don't know. I guess, I guess just accessibility was kind of the first thing that I had when I thought of it was like, if, if this, if you wanted to get somebody into American single malt, if someone is a bourbon drinker or a rye drinker and they're like, you know, scotch isn't my thing. Irish whiskey isn't my thing. So I'm assuming American single malt is going to track along those lines. Classic kind of hit that sweet spot of being floral and being nuanced that you get from a scotch, but still being bold and punchy that you expect from an American whiskey. Right, right. No, I, I think that's all useful commentary because, you know, like what I was thinking when you were saying drinkability, it's like, well, I, there's there needs to be a certain well-roundedness to it, not necessarily a round or a fat or an unctuous mouthfeel per se. I mean, those can be qualities, but but a well-roundedness to a class, you know, the classic, our, our keystone, our benchmark product against which all subsequent projects are going to be measured should be well-rounded. And that doesn't mm -hmm. happen most of the time. First run through the still that takes time to adjust lots of sourcing considerations, as you mentioned, right? Like if we're using a hundred percent malt, well, maybe we should pay attention to where that comes from. And that again, mm -hmm. you're not overnight going to develop good relationships and, you know, like be able to source the exact thing that is going to, you know, take your product from something that is bought because it's from Arizona versus something that can be successful in outside markets, right? And so exactly. that's why I wanted to, to to lean on the fact that they did not just immediately start <laughs> blasting stuff with mesquite. Now that said, let's blast some stuff with mesquite. We know many of us and love some of us the you know Smoky Highland and Isla and Island whiskeys of Scotland, and many of those are you know smoked over peat during the malting process. To me, the term, the nerdy term, phenolic parts per million comes up. Uh, what are some of the similarities between peat smoking and mesquite smoking? And what are some of the differences? Uh, one difference, I imagine, might be the environment. I, I don't know. I, I, I'm just picturing like windswept Isla, you know, <laughs> during a during a wet storm versus like, you know, like some steel guitar. <laughs> And it's like dry 90 degrees all day, every day in, in Arizona. So, oh man. Wow. Yeah. So, so yeah, we can talk about how the aging, the yes. aging impacts the flavor profile and, you know, to kind of take it back to that first question of the differences between peating and mesquiting. So obviously, yeah, parts per million, you're looking at phenolic compounds, you're looking at 
uh, your Guayacol levels. You're looking at your Cresol levels, your levels. And uh, it's interesting because, you know, Pete has this very distinctive Band-Aid iodine um, note that kind of medicinal that a lot of people don't like and aren't particularly fond of. And I will cop. I love them. I'm a, I'm a big fan of heavy, heavy PD. I mean, one of my go-tos is Laphroaig quarter cask. And that is just like chewing on a tire fire. And I love it. Mm-hmm. But with mesquite, you know, mesquite's hard to describe because mesquite tastes like mesquite. It is this very distinctive wood that creates a very distinctive flavor profile. You know, from, from kind of the 5,000 foot view, what you're looking at is uh, mesquite smoke, specifically on malt, creates a bit of a softer, kind of honeyed-like quality to it. Much like Pete, though, mesquite is very delicate in terms of overdoing it. If you are not careful with it, it creates this very aggressive, stringent, unbalanced, bitey quality. And we actually have run tests on, because people occasionally ask that, well, what's your parts per million? So we actually ran a sample of our standard Dorado. Uh, we sent it off to Hartwick College, their Center for Craft Food and Beverage. And so we had them run a test on that to check our phenol levels against a Lerfroig 48%. So what is interesting to look at is our phenol levels for the Dorado are right on par with the Lerfroig. And so that's mm-hmm. going to be your kind of you know distinctive smoky note. The Guayacol, on the other hand, that is almost quadruple in the Lefroig that it is in in the Dorado. And so, like, it's kind of cool to be able to kind of look at it and go, oh, well, you want to know where these spikes are from a scientific standpoint. We're looking at a lower level of Guayacol in the Dorado, which does create this kind of softer, you know, rounder mouthfeel from the smoke. But then in terms of aging, yeah, it's... Again, I I know there are people who bristle at the idea of terroir within whiskey, and I think the idea of being able to taste where this barley was specifically grown, there's a commodification that happens during the distillation process. Like it, you are stripping those nuances out. But to me, terroir of whiskey is leaning into the opportunities and challenges of where you live. And so for us, we are in the desert. You know, we are low humidity, high temperature, but on top of that, we have these really aggressive day-to-day shifts. So like our diurnal shift, our 24-hour shift on average is 30 to 40 degrees. So in the winter, I can leave my house to go to the distillery and it's 30 degrees and I'm leaving the distillery to go home in the afternoon and it's 70. And so if you don't do much of any uh, HVAC, any sort of climate control in your aging space, you're getting a lot of push and pull. Another way to kind of touch on how we break with that Scottish tradition, not only are we using new charred oak, we almost exclusively use quarter casks. We're using 15-gallon barrels. So we have a whole bunch of surface area of our spirit coming into a whole bunch of surface area of the wood. And this will be a digression that you can edit out later if you're like, man, Mark got way into the weeds on this. But a lot of people will try to tell you smaller barrels means faster aging, and that's not true. Smaller barrels means faster extraction. And unfortunately, there are a lot of people out there who are utilizing small format barrels that don't know how to do it properly. And so you can create 
really beautiful spirits with small format barrels, with really aggressive aging restrictions, if you know what you're doing. And the biggest thing is just how narrow you make the cuts. So and again, we can talk about when you're going into a 53-gallon barrel and you know you're going to be able to sit for 5, 6, 10, 20 years, you can make very wide cuts. You can let some of that acetone come off in the t- in the heads and you can let some of those fusel oils start to pull off in the tails that as new make it's not going to taste great you go into a big barrel you let it sit it's going to esterize you're going to get these very beautiful flavors that come out you can't do that in small barrels you don't have the time to do that because if you let a small barrel over extract it just it's like over soaking a tea bag it just becomes really bitter, really astringent, really unpleasant. So a lot of people are surprised to learn average age of our core products, our classic and Dorado is 12 months. Like we are able to get these very nuanced, very beautiful whiskeys in a short amount of time because we're focusing on those constraints versus kind of just being like, well, how you do it for 53 is how you do it for 30, which is how you do it for 15. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the barrel, the the barrel, like, like you said earlier, cooperage can can be a tricky thing. Um, it, it's to me one of the implicit value judgments that accompanies many whiskey enthusiasts at sort of like a I I enjoy I do this at home but not professionally level is that the older something is the the better it is. Right. Uh, I just just. Just as 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 a just a just a, a slight anecdote to, to illustrate this, I, I went to a, a very very well known you know prestigious rum bar. I'm not even going to tell you what state this was in because I don't want to dox them or anything. Uh, and and uh, the person I was with was you know just kind of nursing their drink, and we were we were planning on on leaving and going somewhere else. But I knew I had at least fifteen or twenty minutes to kill, so I I I, I ordered an ounce of uh, a uh, hmm. Don't want to dox them either. A very well-known rum distillers, um, 21 or 23 year old from the, from somewhere in the Caribbean, we'll say. And I tasted it and the bartender came over to, um, I assume for me to, to fluff them, right. To, for, to, to congratulate them on, on pouring me this, this, this pour. They're, they're like, kind of like, like, a, like a ma- imagine, imagine wiping the glass and just kind of looking over and being like, so how do how do you like it? And so I was the like, raised eyebrow. The- yeah. So how is it? Uh, and I was like, honestly, it you know to to quote Forrest Gump, she tastes like cigarettes. Um, so <laughs> it it didn't uh, it didn't do anything for me. Just having that massive age statement on there, I it was actually one of the worst pours I think I'd ever had. Oh, yeah. And so uh, it, it, it's something that. I've come to categorically reject, but I don't think it's something like, and, and again, the small barrels, it, it, it's this heuristic that people apply like, Oh, you use small barrels. Oh, well, forget that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm really glad that you're, you're making the point about the cuts. And again, this is what I mentioned earlier. This is the intersection of the process and mm-hmm. the end product and the flavor notes that we like. Right. So I'm glad that we're zeroing in on this. This episode is brought to you by Near Country Provisions. And I thought that since it's a newish year, I'd share some thoughts on how switching to local farm-raised meat and line-caught seafood from right here in the Mid-Atlantic is a really solid New Year's resolution. 
First off, this is one of the few resolutions that'll be easy to stick to. That's because every month Near Country delivers right to your door and they give you a ton of customization options so that you can really personalize what's in your delivery. I have literally never seen a delivery service with such good customization and add-on options. Full stop. Second, when you see the quality of this meat, from the luxuriously dark tones of their grass-fed beef to the insane marbling on some of the cuts of their pasture-raised pork, you'll know immediately that you've got something special. And that carries through on the plate with nourishing, hearty food for the whole family. I'm a new dad, and my daughter loves sampling my food when we cook up a meal using Near Country Provisions proteins. And as if that wasn't enough, you can feel good knowing that Near Country sources their food from farmers that use sustainable and regenerative agricultural practices that create healthy animals and a healthy environment in which they can roam. A great example are their eggs, which are sourced from Warrington, Virginia, where their farm partner adheres to the highest standards of pasture-raising chickens, which means healthier birds and rich, dark yolks when you crack them open in the pan. Head over to nearcountry.com and enter the code BARCART, that's B-A-R-C-A-R-T, all one word, when you sign up for your subscription to receive two free pounds of bacon or ground beef in your first delivery. Resolve to improve the quality of the protein in your diet and vote with your wallet to support ethical, sustainable local agriculture here in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. Now back to the show. So I'm looking at the rules that you were saying. It's got to it's got to go, you know, kind of below 80%. And then you were imposing another restriction on yourself in-house, which is, all right, we're going to do this narrow cut, which means we're throwing away. Now, throwing away, I'm sure that there are plenty of ways to upcycle, recycle, reuse some of this distillate. You're not just like walking outside with slop buckets and pouring it, pouring it in the parking lot. But but you're you're only utilizing for what goes in the barrel and turns into your end product, a much narrower band than many distilleries would, which Mm -hmm. has cost implications for you guys. Right. So like there's some unit economics involved in here and that's a, that's a significant sacrifice to make in service of that end product. So I just wanted to call that out. Um, But so like now that we know how you guys make both the, classic Delbach and the Dorado that is the mesquite not peated kind of result resolving that initial idea. What are some of the other projects that you guys have embarked on? Because I know that there's one that we're going to talk about here. That's uh, that's a very new release. Yeah, definitely. Um, so yeah. So again, we, we focus around this idea of, of being of, of where we're from and, while we are creating a, obviously I feel wonderful, uh, consistent, high quality product, uh, you know, we, we, we get the good ratings, we get the medals. So it's also nice to be like, oh, well, it's not just us who thinks we're doing a good job. You always want to focus on something creative. You want to be able to give something that keeps your distillers interested. And uh, for a long time, Whiskey Del Bach had what we called our, um, our distiller's cuts. And this was this idea of if we could get our hands on super weird oak or here's, here's a barrel that held a spirit that 
we think would complement one of our core products really, really well. Or sometimes let's play around with mash bills. Like again, four ingredients, you, yeah, you're limited to malted barley, but you change the, the species of barley that you're using, that changes the flavor. You change the malt, you change the roast level on that malt. Every one of those things has an impact. And so the distiller's cuts were these ways for uh, us to kind of flex our muscle. And to be like, yeah, we're making this consistently good core skew that's going out and and people love it. But like, what can we do that maybe is going to be maybe not as accessible or a little more interesting? And so those used to be distributed. Those used to be go out to uh, liquor stores, bars, restaurants. And this is something that I can probably take, actually, I can take a lot of the blame on, <laughs> was uh, pulling those back, actually. And being like, you know, let's let's make these even smaller and let's make these uh, distillery exclusive. And I was lucky enough that I kind of pitched this idea and was able to get some buy-in from, from my bosses, the powers that be. But we didn't want to completely pull back. And so these distillers cuts became what is now our whiskey club, where they are distillery exclusive. Um, if you live in the state of Arizona, if you live in Kentucky, because those are the two states we can ship directly to consumer, you are able to get your hands on these distillers cuts. And, you know, our, our fall 2022 was a heavily smoked mesquited single malt finished in Pinot de Charente barrels. Uh, that Pinot de Charente is a sweet French wine that is essentially like cognac eau de vie, that then you add additional bits of uni blanc in to ferment with the spirit in the barrel. It's this beautiful, beautiful, complex wine. We were able to get our hands on a handful of barrels, finish the mesquite in it. It's It was unreal, just completely beautiful. But obviously then that had obviously some backlash from customers who were like, hey, I can't get this anymore. And so we kind of went through our notes and we assessed what are some distillers cuts that we've done in the past that were huge hits that one, we want to be able to give more people access to, but then two, also be able to do be something we can do year after year. Because that's the other thing is when you do these unique one-offs, they're not scalable. <laughs> in and of course, you know, obviously we're focused on creativity and creating amazing spirits, but we're still a business at the end of the day. And so this idea of what we call our global cast collection came out of this. And this was something that long before I had ever arrived, um, they'd been kicking around this idea of limited releases that are the same year after year. They come out at the same time, but every year we can expand that reach. And so last year we is when we officially launched the Global Cast Collection. And the first one is our Frontera. And that is our classic unsmoked single malt. And that is finished in Pedro Jimenez Sherry Botas. And we specifically chose PX Sherry because it is this very high sugar content sherry. It is very walnutty. It's very jammy, lots of red grape skin. And I was able to taste that original distiller's cut that came out and it was just like, it just blew my mind. Thankfully, Sherry's relatively easy to get a hold of. So we were like, okay, that's going to be, that's going to be our spring release. So each spring, our Frontera comes out. Then we have a summer release, which is also our classic unsmoked that is finished in Calvados barrels. Um, I will fully cop, you know, again, I'm a huge sucker for brandies. 
uh, especially having worked and distilled in Maryland for a while, apple brandies in particular. <laughs> so si- similar thing, just the, these bright fruit notes, this this apple peel, this kind of uh, almost like freshly pressed cider note that happened in there. So that's our Normandy, and that comes out every August. And then the third one is what used to be called our winter release. Uh, we now call our Ode to Isla. So you talked about how, you know, we didn't immediately start blasting stuff with mesquite. Well, the Dorado has evolved over the years. Um, It used to be this very, very aggressive smoke bomb. And based on feedback we got from clients and people who came in, we've pulled that smoke back quite a bit. Still there, still present, still very noticeable, but it wasn't what it was. The Ode to Isla is our chance to go back to that to kind of, it's our, it's our love letter to Isla Scotches. So it is this very huge, billowy, and just wonderful, and to me, beautiful smoke bomb. The attitude that I've taken since I've been lucky enough to help out with this has been, how close can we get to the edge of too smoky? Because again, especially with mesquite, it can get astringent. It can get off balance really quick. Let's push right up to that edge. And just when we think we're about to tip over, that's when we go, okay, we're going to bottle it. So that one is that one's pretty unique because it's a blend of multiple smoked mash bills. It is finished in rye, finished in bourbon, and then also finished in second use of our own barrels. So it is this very complex, very evolved spirit. But yeah, what, what we're going to talk a little bit about is uh, what we're excited about is this is our second annual release of the Frontera. This came out, like I said, uh, this actually came out May of last year. We're releasing it in March because the demand was so high last year. We're like, okay, we're going to try and get ahead of it. Uh, but it is just this beautiful it's kind of hard to see on, on the webcam, but it is this beautiful, dark, dark copper and has this just absolutely just kind of soft, delicate mouthfeel that obviously we're getting from the PX Sherry finishes. And even with that, even within this kind of set constraint of every year is a Sherry release, every year is a Calvados release we're still playing around, you know, we're still like, where can we source these botas from? Where can we, uh, how many times can we use them and get more nuanced flavor on top of them? So, so while the distiller's cuts still exist, uh, again, they are, they're super, super, uh, exclusive now and just within Arizona and Kentucky, but we do still have this opportunity to kind of show off our, our blending and finishing skills with this global cast collection. I, I just got to say, well, First, first, I'll throw in my my little commentary on the, uh, the on the Ode to Isla, which is just uh, what it, it reminded me of of the Danny DeVito meme. So anyway, I started blasting. Uh, exactly. <laughs> uh, but but no, on a serious note, the I, I love this I love this move, and I think it's so smart and shows the sophistication and what it what it can truly mean to bring in somebody who knows their stuff and infuse an existing program with a different focus and a different energy, right? Because you had, you had this, like you, you were saying when you were discussing the distiller's cuts, 
you were you were talking about energy. You were saying we were literally flexing our muscles. We were burning calories, flexing muscles. That takes time. It takes attention, and it takes away from certain other things. It's a choice, right? There's only so many hours in a day. There's on, only so much barley in the barley silo. What are we going to do with it in any given day? And, and that was a decision. And so by pulling back from that a little bit, you know, of course you're going to face a backlash from people who liked who liked that. They didn't have to come in and make it. It just showed up on shelves and they liked it. Cool. But what I love about this bifurcation between the Whiskey Club and the Global Cast Collection is that you're you're saying like, oh, okay, like we've been around for like 12 years now. We've got our feet under us. We can do a little bit more consistently. We have all this data about what was successful in the past. We can kind of do this. And and another thing to mention is that you're not taking all the magic and the mystery out of it because you still do have those annual challenges that are going to be slightly different from year to year. Where are you going to get your casks from? It's going to differ. The, are those heat fluctuations going to be as radical one year? You know, are, are, is it, you going to have a warmer winter or a cooler winter with with greater swings? Like there are there are still some terroir related unknowns in the game, and so for me, that is the draw of having a Frontera release and a Calvados release and an Ota Isla release every year. And get just getting back to the mesquite smoke, something I've been meaning to just kind of put out there for you because I don't think we've quite given the mesquite all of the attention it deserves here. It's weird to me that mesquite is like a flavor note that you almost have to back your way into from barbecue, right? Because we mm-hmm. get mesquite from barbecue. And so few of us have actually like smelled a pan of burning mesquite chips unless you've actually made barbecue, which I have. But yeah, isn't that kind of weird? Like that most of us know mesquite, not in a vacuum, but but only in the context of like stuffing our faces full of sweetened pork. It is. And again, I think that's what speaks to how unique mesquite is. And another thing, you know, we haven't quite touched on is, you know, Tucson was the first UNESCO city of gastronomy in the US. And that is because, yeah, so uh, Tucson has been consistently settled, the Tucson area, from, you know, the indigenous Americans to uh, colonization to now, it has been one of the longest steadily settled areas of the country. And that through line can be seen within the city from a cultural aspect and especially from a culinary aspect. And because mesquite is so ubiquitous in this area, you have mesquite furniture, you have mesquite flour from the pods that are on the trees. You have the mesquite pods can be used as kind of like a sweet little dessert treat. And so it kind of makes sense that in terms of how we think of mesquite, it is for better or for worse, infused within the idea of culinary, that it is used to cook meat. It is used both in American culinary cooking. It is used in indigenous American cooking. It is used in Mexican-American and Sonoran Mexican. Like all of these different areas utilize mesquite in very distinctive ways. But yeah, it is within this context of sustenance and, and of barbecue and of it just, yeah, it's it's another reason I think that it speaks to Stephen and Elaine's vision of something that is of the Southwest and that is 
maybe not known in context of whiskey, but is certainly known within context of food. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, it's endlessly fascinating to me. I mean, I think you've, I think you've wound up in, you know, as we said, by way of other roads, but I think you've ended up in a really special place. And, uh, it seems like just based on some of the, uh, some of the changes that you've been describing, uh, you've really been able to, you know, flex your own creative muscles there. And, uh, so for listeners, what we do have to share is that, we will be getting a bottle of this year's Frontera release, and that will be featured in our spring new and noteworthy session. So we've got a bottle coming, and uh, we will we'll probably drop in a, a clip or two from this uh, this conversation into that episode when it when it does air, when we get to record that with some of the other spirits that folks have been sending our way. Uh, but. Uh, Mark, I wanted to wrap this up. You know, let's let's do let's do the bookends here because we started talking about some of these. We we got deep fast. We got into rules and regs and you know gossip from the TTB uh, about where we stand currently with American single malt. And so I want to return back to, you know, that tuning fork of my conversation with Lance Winters, because one of the things that we were so optimistic about, this was three or four years ago that we had this chat, uh, was how wide open the category is and, and how well suited it, it is for people to explore and try new things and, you know, uh, enjoy the freedom of the open frontier as opposed to the hard walled uh, borders of a geographic designation of origin. So what do you think the future holds for the category of American single malt? And I mean, obviously we've just learned by way of example, some of the things that Whiskey Del Bach is doing, but I don't know, maybe this is just a chance for you to extrapolate a little bit and then put on, put on, you, you know, put on your philosopher's hat. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I, I think actually you hit the nail on the head by the fact that it is kind of a frontier. And, and I say that as a very good thing, like that is not a, that is not a meant to be a disparagement of frontier as untested waters. It is, um, a couple of years ago at the American Craft Spirits Association um, annual conference, the American Single Malt Whiskey Commission got together and there was a presentation given on kind of just a summary of here's who's making American Single Malt. And one of the most striking things about that presentation was uh, the gentleman who was giving it brought up two maps. Um, one was a map of Scotland. And it was like, okay, here are the average temperatures of Scotland. Here's the average humidity of Scotland. And there was maybe five to six degrees variance from various areas of Scotland in terms of like temperatures uh, fluctuation. And then he brought up a map of the US. And so you had this kind of very blue turquoise map of Scotland. And then he brought up the map of America and it was green, blue, bright red, yellow, orange, because we have this massive space within to make American single malt whiskey. And, you know, I'm a big believer in, I think the TTB eventually accepting this and establishing this designation. It helps, uh, it helps uh, validate what we're doing within the American single malt space. It is a nod to what we're doing is legitimate, that it is a real spirit, that it is a real whiskey that deserves attention. 
it, you know, can help filter out bad actors that, you know, for better or for worse are be like, oh, this is an American single malt. Eh, well, technically it's not because you sourced it and it has to come from the same distillery. And also, even though there are these specific designations of how it has to be produced, every single distillery can make their own version of it. And I think, and I say this as a person who's distilled bourbon in the past, who has distilled rye in the past, who loves rye still, I think sometimes you lack that variety in the bourbon and the rye market, that a bourbon is still going to taste like a bourbon for the most part. And you have those outliers that do do really creative things that can kind of break that mold. But, uh, you know, I just sat in on a, on a panel that was uh, single malts from Deer Hammer in Colorado, Cedar Ridge in Iowa, us, Balcones in Texas, and to sit and taste through these five different single malts, none of them tasted the same. Like every single distillery was able to make production decisions, aging decisions, and finishing decisions that you taste that and you're like, this is the same spirit. Like we're, we're all following the rules, but every single one was so of its space. And I think that's where you'll see this continue to evolve is you will see distilleries and, you know, more and more distilleries are making an American single malt that they're going to find that thing that defines them. And, you know, I think something that has has made me excited in the craft space in general is the quality just keeps getting better, too. You know, for for a long time, you know, you would you would fight that kind of idea of, oh, well, you're a craft distiller, so your stuff must be garbage. Well, no, there, there are a lot of us who know what we're doing. Uh, there's, <laughs> unfortunately, there's some not great stuff out there, but... We try and, and weed it out little by little ex- every year, man. <laughs> exactly. But I, I, think that's, I think that's where the future is. And I think that's kind of the nice thing about this designation is how wide it is. Because mm. while it does give these guidelines on how it has to be produced, everything else is up to you as a distiller. And to me, that's the exciting thing is, I mean, even let's narrow it down. And I, I had mentioned Santa Fe Spirits and their Cole Keegan. That is a mesquite American single malt. It tastes nothing like our Dorado. It is because it's, it's the production styles are different. And so I will always tell people, grab that bottle. Like we have a bottle of Cole Keegan at work. And when people are interested, I'm like, well, how else have people done mesquite? Or like any the balcones, balcones has done a mosquito. Like grab those three, taste them side by side. Yes, yes, there is going yes. to be something for somebody in there. All right. And to me, like I'm here in DC, Jack Rose. Go to Jack Rose. And now you can have a three poor flight of mosquito American single malt. And to me, like once you can do that and sense that variety within that very narrow, very specific like production and category sliver like that to me, like that, that says something. And I, 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 so I couldn't agree more with everything that you've said. I will just drop this in. I have a favorite and it's a very esoteric favorite, um, country and spirit category with a set of rules. So it's not just a geographic indication, but it's also a set of process based rules as well. Uh, guess I'll give you one guess. I'll give you. I'll give you a base, grape. Oh, um, well, we've already talked about. So it's grape. 
I mean, I'm not going to say cognac because that's just too obvious. Uh, Armagnac? Pisco. Pisco. Oh, see? Okay, yeah. So uh, I went Eurocentric. I just, I... That's on me. <laughs> <laughs> well, so what I love about Pisco is, you know, so I just uh, had a recent interview with uh, the gents from Suyo Pisco, and they're going around and they're sourcing from individual distilleries all over Peru, not just in, not just around Pisco, but like all over the place. And they're focusing on lesser known producers. And the thing about Pisco is that they've got all these, they've got way more grapes that they can utilize than in Cognac, for example. So a lot more diversity there. And they've got this crazy diversity of uh, geogra- geography, there's some right down by the ocean. There's some crazy high elevation, some nice low valleys. Like there's a lot of variation there. And then they went and they stuck this one really crazy thing where it's like, but you can only run it through the still once, which is a huge process restriction, mm-hmm. right? So I love that set of rules to me because it's perfect for Peru for whatever, for whatever reason, the the stars aligned and when they set those guidelines they set themselves up for such success in that they they've got lots that they can do but they also have something that makes them really unique and i'm not saying that the american single malt whiskey commission should base their sets of rules that they're trying to get passed through the ttb on pisco because we're not peru we're america we've got like you said the heat map is different but i do like i I love to mention that when people are talking about geographic indications and process-based regulations because it can be done well. It doesn't always get done well, but it can be done well. So to, to me, that seems like the opportunity here. So I'd, I want to get to a couple of quick lightning round questions, but uh, before we do that, uh, is there anything else that I've egregiously passed over <laughs> when it comes to Whiskey Del Bach? Uh, mesquite american single malt anything any of the above uh, you know other than just i i want to make sure that you know obviously our our, our co-founders Stephen paul and amanda paul get the shout out and you know i i'm standing on the shoulders of the distilleries at delbach that came before me nathan who was the original head distiller veronica who i took veronica's place because she actually moved back east ironically i came west she went back east to and i ironically I yeah, ironically. <laughs> and I inherited an amazing production staff. And, you know, it's it's been it's been great to one, to have the freedom to kind of again, yeah, be able to do some of my own creativity, but you know, I'm I'm standing on their shoulders and and I'm incredibly thankful for that. And just I would encourage people if you haven't explored American single malt whiskey, you really should. Um, you know, it, it can be a little difficult to find because most of us who are making it are pretty small producers, but what is out there is really, really good. And uh, yeah, just it's 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 a huge honor to even be a part of kind of this burgeoning, uh, this burgeoning whiskey designation. Yeah, you hear that bourbon nerds, all the cool kids are hanging out with the American single malt. So, uh, you know, you take your three flavor notes, we'll we'll sit here with uh, with with all the flavor notes in the in the in the rainbow. Uh, so with that. We will, of course, link to all the stuff, all the socials, all the websites uh, on the show notes page, modernbarcart.com forward slash podcast. But for now, let's jump into the lightning round. First question is going to be your classic desert island scenario. Uh, You get to pick one bottle and then one cocktail that you either have all the ingredients for or is just sort of magically on tap in in this uh, no prospect of rescue situation. Interpret the rest of the rules however you wish. Uh, so bottle, Balvenie 14 Caribbean cask. 
Ooh, ooh, I got that for my dad for Christmas last year. It that, is. That's a, I, that's a goodie. It is. It is. It is my go-to. It, we talked about like introducing people to uh, an entire spec of whiskey. The Balvenie 14 is what I tell people. You think you don't like scotch? Try this. Mm-hmm. It is. I will. I will put it even head over tails over their 21 year. Like that is that is my go-to. That is my go-to dram. Ironically, then that doesn't play into my cocktail though, because my go-to cocktail is going to be a Sazerac. Like, because mm. we talked, you know, the first time you and I sat down on on this program was talking absinthe, and I still have a love for absinthe. I still have a love for that complexity, and I'm a sucker for rye whiskey. So yeah, just being able to get that little bit of herbal note complexity from the absinthe wash, but then you lean into it with especially a really big, bold, spicy rye. Yeah, it's gonna that's gonna be a Sazerac. So, you know, then put the finger on me asking what what rye that's a better question but those would be mm. my co- that would be my cocktail in my <laughs> bottle <laughs> i love it i love it that is so you i i, I love that uh i love that that balvenie reference shout out to them uh all right this is a special lightning round question just for you uh, something that our listeners may not know is that you are a, a connoisseur and a lover of of animals and uh, specifically now distillery cats. So yes. uh, do you have some at Delbach? Yeah, we have one. We have two row. Yeah, she uh, I, the running joke is she was hired to be a mouser, retired about five years ago, didn't tell anybody. So now she's a mascot. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, so you've get you've got this great distillery cat slash mascot. Now, if you were designed, called upon to to create the ultimate distillery cat, what would it look like? Any powers? Like, what, what would what would you design this bizarre animal to to be? Oh man, I feel like I'm going to get in trouble with staff if I don't say Turo is the peak distillery cat. But <laughs> okay, so like if we're if we're if we're kicking it out there, so yeah, you you're know, exporting this cat to a different distillery, right? <laughs> Sorry, yeah, two row. We're not getting rid of you. You're, you're you'll continue to get fed every morning. Uh, <laughs> uh, so so our cat, my wife and I's cat, Rump Roast. Uh, he is a Tom who is fixed. So he's got the big chunky Tomcat cheeks. So you got to start with the big chunky Tomcat cheeks because it's oh, yeah. adorable. Um, you know, I've, I've become a big fan of kind of the traditional tabby look, you know, what we call our standard, standard issue cat. So <laughs> we're doing big chubby cheeks. We're doing standard issue cat markings. You know, let's, let's get some white paws on there. Kind of go hot rod Ooh. style. Oh yeah. Um, I'm going to be honest, as much as I love Turo and as much affection as I will give her, being able to actually hunt <laughs> and be a mouser, take care of pests, that would be a huge, that would be a huge advantage. Uh, and then, you know, at the end of the day, you know, cats can be standoffish, but, you know, T- Turo, again, I'm going to come back to her. She has leaned into the mascot. She's friendly. She likes when people come to see her. You know, got you got to get that public facing PR marketing gist. So I'm thinking big, chunky tabby, hot rod wheels, super friendly and can actually catch mice. <laughs> very nice. Very nice. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. You got to have you got to have the both the yin and the yang, like eviscerate vermin and then show up for a little scritch. Um, exactly. So, well, well done. Well designed. Is there. Uh, anything in the distilling or spirits or cocktail space, you know, we've mentioned that you've been doing this distilling gig for a number of years now. Is there anything that you've changed your mind on? Uh, yeah. Sourcing product. 
actually. I will I will fully cop that I have come 180 on that. When I first started, I was one of those jackasses that was, if it's sourced, it's illegitimate. It's only craft if you mill, mash, ferment, distill, age, blend, and bottle. And I think a lot of that attitude came from there were a lot of bad actors that were in the sourcing space for a long time that, you know, it's just, just by pure coincidence, everyone's grandpappy's recipe happened to be 95% rye from MGP. Huh? That's a coincidence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so I will admit when I first started, that was, I would beat that, that anti-sourcing drum. And I've, I've turned around on that because, you know, independent bottlers, places like lost lantern and barrel have shown when you do it transparently and you do it thoughtfully and you do it in a way to create something that is different then then that can be something brilliant and so i actually have a whole newfound respect for distilleries that and also understanding the the financial restrictions like that's been a big thing too is understanding it is so expensive to do own make and i think i kind of touched on you know for the first 11 years of our existence, Whiskey Del Bach was American single malt. Last fall, we released a rye. It's a source dry. It's a source dry from MGP. But we finish it in our Dorado barrels, and then we filter it across mesquite charcoal that's produced during our malting process. And we're clear on our label. Our label is incredibly transparent. We say this was distilled and aged in Indiana. But this is what we did to make it different because we didn't want to just take someone else's juice and slap our label on it. And so obviously, you know, that has had an influence. But the longer I've spent in the industry, the more people I've met who do sourcing in a thoughtful, transparent and innovative way, I've I've gained a lot of respect for that. And I'll I'll fully admit that has been a 180 that seven years ago, I never would have thought (laughs) you would get me on a recording saying that. Yeah, that's a great one. And I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, last lightning round question here. Uh, you're a transplant to the current ecological niche that you inhabit. Uh, what is your favorite American Southwest desert plant, animal, or mineral in uh, in the Tucson area? Uh, so animal, the javelina. So th- these, these are things that like I, I wasn't even aware of until we moved down here. Javelinas look like pigs. They're not pigs. They're part of a, a species called peccary. But they, they, they look like wild pigs. They are adorable. They are horrific to smell. And <laughs> they just run everywhere. And they are the, the coolest, uniquest animal. And in fact, my wife and I were just at an arts festival this weekend and got some wrought iron javelinas that are going to go out in our front yard and it is entirely possible that they will get knocked over by javelinas as they come rooting through. <laughs> nice. Nice. I love it. Uh, that's a great answer. Great answer. Well, Mark, I mean, I've had a blast, uh, as expected. We are very excited to review and taste through the, uh, 2023 release of the Frontera that is heading our way. So more fun and more value yet to come from this conversation. Uh, is there anything else that you, uh, wanted to say before we sign off here? Any requests from the listeners? Any, uh, any, any final words of wisdoms, any good knock, knock jokes? Oh God. Uh, so no, uh, it's, it's been an absolute pleasure as always. Um, you know, we're, you know, shameless self plugs. We're on all the social medias at Whiskey Del Bach. Um, one thing that I am incredibly excited about after a couple of years being gone, we're back in Maryland. 
Um, so we are mm-hmm. available in Maryland. So that's a shameless, hey, if you're in Maryland, you can get your hands on us now. And uh, uh, was that through LibDib? Is that correct. bartenders? So bartenders, bartenders in Maryland bar programs of whom I know there are some listening, go to LibDib and uh, that's where you're going to find these Delbach products. So hit that up. Um, yeah. Mark, uh, again, just thanks so much for sharing your expertise. I, I really love the mental zones that you inhabit. Uh, they give me a lot to think about and a, and a lot to you know take notes on and, and eventually go away and, and maybe, maybe form some of my own conclusions about this emerging category on. And uh, thanks most importantly for being my guest again here on the Modern Bar Cart Podcast. My absolute pleasure. Thank you so much, Eric. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Bar Cart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is, the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start a cocktail revolution here, and by spreading the word, you're helping us fight the good fight. You can always reach us by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com if you're looking for cocktail or bartending advice, or if you're a pro who would like to pull up a mic and be interviewed for all to hear. Also, definitely follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern Bar Cart for cocktail porn, recipes, and entertaining tips. And keep an eye out for new product releases and special offers, which are happening all the time. We love our listeners and we really enjoy giving you exclusive discounts and sneak peeks at our latest and greatest cocktail projects. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and adventures are just beginning. So remember folks, drink responsibly and experiment boldly. This episode was made possible with editing and sound design by Samantha Reed. American Single Malt Insights, courtesy of Whiskey Delbach, Head Distiller, Mark Veertaller, and a little bit of interview magic by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2023.